0: Well, what can I say? It's been a very eventful week. Today is Wednesday. Today's is Tainous Esther. Tomorrow is Purim. So for the entire Jewish people, it's a very eventful week. But for our family, it's been even more eventful because, thank God, we were blessed with a baby boy born early Monday morning. Thank God everyone's doing well. My wife Chaya is doing well. She's convalescing at home. The baby is cute as a button and behaving well. I've heard reports. I've heard unconfirmed reports that he's crying the whole night, but he hasn't woken me up yet. It's a very busy week. Please, God, we're going to have a Shalom Zachar in our house on Friday night. A bris on Monday morning at the circumcision on Monday morning at the Torch Center. Of course, this brings all kinds of extra responsibilities to everyone and to me. And I was thinking, you know, maybe we finally have a good excuse to cancel the PowerShip podcast. Maybe we have a legitimate, undeniably legitimate reason to maybe take off a week. Should we cancel? I don't think so. For a few reasons. First of all, you know, Torch is known for a lot of things. We got the great podcasts and the wonderful Torch Center and the... Best collection of microphones west of the Mississippi. But one thing Torch is definitely not known for is a robust and generous paternity leave. And therefore, I got a beer. But in all seriousness, a new baby is a great time to thank the Almighty for all the goodness that he bestows upon us every single second of every single day and of course it should be an opportunity to increase our Torah study not to decrease and you know what the past couple of weeks we've been anticipating this for a while turns out that the new kid thank god he's a wallaby not exactly a rule follower the rules are more like suggestions he doesn't care about a due date So we've been waiting for this for a couple of weeks. You know, I always turn off my phone when I'm recording a podcast or at least put it on Do Not Disturb. The last couple of weeks, I told my wife, I'm going to put it on a Do Not Disturb, but I'm going to have the screen facing up. So in case you call, I'll be there. But thank God we haven't missed a week. We're back at the Torch Center. There's a new Wolby boy. And I'm committing to not leaving. Until we have a new Parsha podcast. So let us begin. As always, the image is Rabbi Walby at Jima.com. On to Parsha's Tzav. Our Parsha begins with the discussion of the processing of the sacrifices delineated in last week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayikra. With the exception of a few sacrifices and offerings, all the descriptions of the sacrifices themselves our feature in last week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayikra. And this week is dedicated to the processing of said sacrifices. The Ramban, the very first comment that he offers on our Parsha tells us that in Parsha's Vayikra, it's addressed to the Jewish people because the whole Parsha, Parsha's Vayikra is about the instruction of bringing the sacrifices. Our Parsha begins, Tzav es Aharon, command Aaron, the Kohen, because our Parsha deals with the processing of said sacrifices. And who does that? Who is in the temple, the tabernacle, processing the sacrifices? That is Aaron and Aaron's children, and therefore that is the role of our Parsha. Now, just like last week, where it described the bringing of the sacrifices, it started off with the Ola, with the elevation offering, our Parsha as well, when it talked about the processing of of the sacrifices it begins with the ola with the elevation offering and it tells us command aaron and his sons this is the torah this is the instruction of the ola of the elevation sacrifice it's burnt on the fire on top of the altar the entire night until the morning so we know every day in the temple and the Tabernacle as well. There were two daily sacrifices that were the end caps of the entire day's regimen of sacrifices. The first one is the Talmud sacrifice of the morning, the daily sacrifice that's brought every single day. And the last one of the day is the daily sacrifice of the afternoon. And those are all processed and burned on top of the altar over the course of the evening. So our pressure tells us, that the evening ola, which is the type of sacrifice, the evening elevation offering, which is the daily, the tamid daily elevation offering, it is burnt atop the pyre, atop the fire on top of the altar, overnight until the morning. And then it tells us about the morning ritual, about removing of the ashes. In fact, you may remember in last year's, Parsha podcast for this week's Parsha. The memorably titled podcast, Ashes, Ashes, We All Rise Up, was all about the ashes and their removal. And that's the two verses, verses three and four. And then verse five, it goes back to the fire on top of the altar. There's a fire on top of the mesmer, on top of the altar. It should never be extinguished. And the Cohen adds logs of wood in the morning and on top of that, you burn the parts of the sacrifice that need to be elevated. Eish tamid to bo. There should always be a fire, a steady fire, on top of the mizbech, on top of the altar. Lo It shall not be extinguished. That's the first set of verses of our parsha. And then it proceeds to talk about the mincha, the processing of the meal offering. That is the next offering that is featured in our parsha. But there's a big emphasis. A big focus on the fires on top of the altar. In fact, Rashi calculates that there are four distinct mentions about the fire upon the altar. In the first few verses of our Parsha, Rashi tells us that the reason why there's so many invocations, so many mentions of this fire is to tell us how many fires there have to be, either two or three or four continuous fires upon the altar, different amounts of fires for different days. Rashi also tells us an interesting factoid that the light of the menorah, the fire for the menorah, you didn't, you didn't strike a match to light the menorah, you took a fire from on top of the altar. Why? Because the word "tumid," which means continuously, is featured by the menorah and is featured by the altar. And therefore, it tells us the fire that's the continuous fire upon the altar, that should be the fire that's source to light the continuous fire on top of the menorah. And finally, Rashi tells us that there is a prohibition against extinguishing the fire on top of the altar, And in fact, if you do that, you transgress not one, but two distinct Torah violations. Today, I want to focus on these fires on top of the altar. It's interesting that there's a mitzvah, a positive mitzvah, a performative mitzvah, to always have a steady, continuous fire on top of the altar. Similarly, there is a second mitzvah, a prohibition, against extinguishing the fire on top of the altar. In fact, if you look at the Rambam in the Halakha, he says that someone who violates this and extinguishes the fire, they are punished with lashes. They get lashed in a Jewish court. That's how serious it is. And even if they extinguish only one ember of fire, and even if they remove it from the altar and extinguish it off the altar... That is a violation of this mitzvah to have a continuous fire on top of the altar and they would be punished with lashes. Very serious things over here. Now, I saw a very interesting piece in the Sefer HaChinach on this particular mitzvah. The Sefer Hinach is a medieval era book that goes through every mitzvah in the Torah and gives a little snapshot of that mitzvah to understand some of the basic rules of it and some of the basic reasons why we have every mitzvah. And it follows the order of the mitzvahs in the order that they appear in the Torah. In fact, on the other podcast, on one of the other podcasts that we have over here from the Torch Center, the mitzvah podcast, the primary source material that we use to understand every mitzvah in the Torah and to understand the basic guardrails, the basic scaffolds of the mitzvah, and the reasons behind it, the book that we use is the Sefer Chenuch, and he has an amazing comment, an amazing piece on this mitzvah, the mitzvah to have a continuous and steady fire on top of the altar. So he begins by explaining to us the mitzvah, that there's a mitzvah to light a fire on top of the mezbeach, on top of the altar, and it has to be lit at all times, And then he explains, the first thing he says, is that actually it wasn't even needed. You didn't need the fire. Why do we have a fire on top of the altar? Well, the sacrifices, the parts of the animals, they're not going to be consumed by humans, at least in most cases, of course, a lot of details, are going to be brought up the ramp onto the altar and they're going to be burned on the altar and they're going to be elevated to God and therefore we need a fire on top of the altar but he tells us that actually we don't need a fire on top of the altar why because the almighty's presence was in the tabernacle and subsequently in the temple as well and therefore the almighty produced a heavenly fire that descended from heaven on high down below and it consumed the animals and the parts of the animals, the sacrifices, on top of the altar. And therefore, there's really no need to have like a supplementation of a human fire because there's a divine fire. If there's a divine fire, why do you need a human fire? So he tells us that the reason why we have to make this human fire, even though it's unnecessary, even though when the Almighty's presence was in the temple and the tabernacle, he would provide a heavenly fire. Nevertheless, there is... concept that whenever there's a miracle, you try to obscure the miracle as much as possible. You try to conceal it. You don't want the miracle to be overt. You want it to be hidden. And he gives an example with the splitting of the sea, of course, back in the book of Exodus, we wrote the splitting of the sea, and the verse tells us that the whole night before, there was a gale, there was a hurricane, there were tornadoes, there were strong winds, and then in the morning... The sea split, and the Jewish people were able to walk amidst the sea in dry land. Why did the Almighty make a gale, hurricane force winds the night before? To minimize the miracle, to make it seem like it could have been nature. So, all miracles, the miracles are basically like extensions of natural phenomena or natural phenomena that are perfectly tailored for the experience at hand. We know if you've seen like a tsunami, you know that sometimes there are these natural events that clear out entire oceans or or entire ocean beds or parts of the ocean, parts of the sea. So that's what happened. But it happened for the Jewish people when they needed it at the right time, when they were surrounded by their enemies, the sea, in fact, split But that does allow a skeptic or a heretic to question the Almighty's role. Similarly, if there was a fire descending from heaven, consuming the sacrifices, well, that's an unimpeachable, incontrovertible miracle. You always want to have an escape, an accommodation for the heretics. There always has to be some room for skepticism. And therefore, the miracles are always obscured and we're commanded to try to obscure the miracles when we can and therefore we provide a fire atop the altar. And then he adds, this I found really interesting. The heavenly fire was actually invisible. He doesn't think this is his speculation, the Savora. He speculates that the heavenly fire that descended from heaven on high to consume the sacrifices on top of the altar. It was invisible and therefore you could totally miss the miracle if you see the human fire and you don't see the heavenly fire. Well, the miracle is completely obscured. But then he asks a very sharp question. Listen to this question. He says, wait a minute. We know that there are sacrifices. And the sacrifices, well, they have to be processed. And part of the processing of the sacrifices is to burn certain parts of the animal on top of the altar. But the mitzvah to have a fire on top of the altar is irrespective of the sacrifice schedule, meaning that even if there's a point of the day or a point of the year or a point of the night or some juncture in time where there are no sacrifices, there must still be a fire. And the question they asked is, wait a minute, why is there a need to have a fire on top of the altar at all times? You need the fire to elevate the sacrifices, to burn the parts of the animal that are not consumed. And of course, every sacrifice has a different set of protocols. But you're elevating to God the animal, whatever that means, on the altar. It seems that the fire is just A means to process the sacrifice. Yet here we have a special mitzvah to just have a fire even when it's not being used to process the sacrifices. Not only is there a positive mitzvah, there's also a prohibition to extinguish the fires, even one ember. There has to be a fire even outside of the utility of the fire processing the sacrifices. And the question is, why is, you know, why is the fire any different? than all the other aspects of the sacrifices. So for example, there's no mitzvah to have sharp knives in the temple, even though, of course, without sharp knives, you can't do any sacrifices. It's a facilitator for a mitzvah, but it's not a standalone mitzvah. The fire, you would imagine, would be the same thing. You happen to need a fire for the sacrifices, yet we have special mitzvahs in our parsha that you always have to have a fire, even if there are no sacrifices. That's the question that the Sefer HaChinuch, this ancient medieval era book on the mitzvos, asks on this mitzvah, mitzvah number 132, in his counting of the mitzvos in the Torah, why must there always be a fire atop the altar, even in a case where there are no sacrifices? And his answer is absolutely Fascinating. Listen to this. He says that just as with respect to the showbreads, the showbreads were the, the breads that were placed upon the table and were consumed by the Kohanim each week. And the reason why we have these breads, says the Sefer Ha'anuch, is because they are receptacles of divine blessing. And they are absorbing the blessing from God that permeates, that spreads to all the other breads in the world. Meaning that with the show breads in the tabernacle, in the temple, there is now holy bread, so to speak. And the Almighty's blessing descends upon that bread. And once it's on that bread, it can spread to all the bakeries and all the ovens, and all the bread of the whole world can now receive that blessing once there is a foothold for the divine blessing to descend upon in the Almighty's house, so to speak, in the tabernacle, in the temple. Very interesting idea. There has to be something for the blessing to grab a hold on. And once there's blessing in the bread in the temple, then it can spread to every other Aspect, every other example of its ilk, every other bread in the world. The bread of the show bread that serves as a receptacle for the divine blessings of bread. And once there's a bread that's replete with divine blessing, it can now spread to every other bread. Similarly, says the Sefer Hanach, we want blessing in the bread. We also want blessing in the fire. Amazing line. We have to do a mitzvah on the fire. Why? So that fire in this world should be blessed. And the fire in every person should have the influence of this divine blessing. What an amazing idea. Every person has a fire within them. And we want that fire within them to be blessed. And therefore, the Almighty makes a mitzvah to have a fire in the temple, in the tabernacle, and that fire will receive the divine blessing. And once there's blessing and fire in this world, it can spread to the fire that exists within each and every person, the fire in everyone's belly, as they say. What an amazing idea. Why do we have a fire on the altar? So I always thought, well, we needed to process to burn the sacrifices, to elevate them to heaven. Says the If that was the only reason why we had to have a fire, well, then it would be coupled with sacrifices. And you wouldn't need to have a fire when there is no sacrifice to process. There wouldn't be a standalone mitzvah to always have a fire. The fire would be like the knife. You need it, but only for its utility in helping you perform the other mitzvah, the mitzvah of the sacrifices. That's what I would have thought before reading this Sefer But now we discover that there's actually another reason why we have to have a fire on top of the altar. And this reason mandates that we have a fire on the altar at all times. And that is to provide blessing for all the fires in the world. And the blessing of the fire descends to this world and has a foothold on the altar. And once it's there, it can spread and permeate and proliferate to all the fires within each person. What an interesting idea! And he continues. What is the nature of this fire within man? eish zeh. What is this fire? So he tells us. This is just again very interesting framing. This is the nature of man. Man is comprised of four elements. And the most ethereal of these elements is the fire. And this fire within a person gives a person strength and movement and action and energy. And therefore, it needs blessing more than anything else. Humans have the capacity to be dynamic. We have energy, we have movement, we have action. And that is the engine, so to speak, that drives mankind. And therefore, it's so important, so critical, it demands blessing. And therefore, the Almighty says, put a fire atop of the altar and let there be blessing at all times on this fire. And once there's blessing in this fire, there will be blessing in all the fires, including the fire in every person's belly, as they say, the fire in your belly, the engine that drives you, let that be blessed. And then he adds another central idea. The nature of a blessing... Is balance, is equilibrium. It's to have just the right amount, no more, no less. The Goldilocks zone. The fire within man has to be balanced. If you have too little of it, then your strength wanes, you get weakened. If you have too much of it, then you'll die of a burning fever meaning it's just too its too much, it'll consume you. And then he tells us, in next week's parasha, parasha Shemini, we have the horrific and tragic episode of the sons of Aaron bringing a foreign fire and being burned to death. Too much fire is destructive. And that's why we need blessing. Blessing means balance. We need blessing in this world, the balance of enough energy, Not too much and not too little. What an amazing idea. What an amazing piece here from the Sefer Chinuch. So many interesting and fundamental ideas. First of all, this idea number one, a blessing has to have a foothold. Idea number two, miracles are to be obscured. And then the idea of fire and energy and dynamism as the engine that drives mankind, but it needs blessing, meaning it needs to be balanced, not too much and not too little. And that's why, says the Sefer Chinoch, we have this very unusual mitzvah, a mitzvah that seems to be totally independent of the utility of the fire to process the sacrifice, the mitzvah to have a steady fire atop the altar at all times. I want to suggest another approach. I want to suggest another idea, another way of thinking about this fire that's there at all times, on top of the altar, even when there is no sacrifice present. What is fire? Fire is something which is really useful for us, even though we don't actually use the fire itself. Fire is is like an enabler. It enables human life. It facilitates how we live. Even though we don't use fire itself, but fire makes everything around us work. So, of course, without fire, you can't have any bread. You know, all the other animals... The carnivorous animals, they are able to eat raw meat. We can't do that. We have to cook it, process it with fire. You need fire for heat and for fuel and to cleanse things. Without fire, there's no industry. You can't make metal. You can't build anything. You need fire in so many different areas of life. If you took out fire, we would not be able to live, certainly not the way we live today. Yet fire itself is not something that we partake in We use fire to transform other things. Fire is this force of changing the properties of a given item. In itself, it's quite ethereal. It's something that is not very useful for us in its own, but it has the ability to transform other things and make them more useful, more beneficial, better for us in a variety of ways. So we need fire. And of course, we need fire in the temple, in the tabernacle. It's a critical part of the sacrifice protocols and rituals and procedures. You slaughter the animal and catch the blood and you walk to the altar and sprinkle it upon the altar. And then you divide up the animal into its parts and you elevate it to the altar and you place it upon the fire on top of the altar and thereby gets elevated to God. And again, the fire is this force that's transforming the animal, which is very mundane. It's not very holy. It's transforming it into an elevation. It's something which is very spiritual. Fire, again, is functioning as a force that takes a potential for holiness and actualizes it. If you don't have the fire, the animal will remain an animal, will remain animalistic, and will never be transformed into a sacrifice. The Torah is telling us that we have to have a fire ready, steady, at all times. Perhaps the idea here is that the fire is there to transform the sacrifice into an elevation. The fire must be prepared ahead of time. Why? Because preparation for an opportunity is a mitzvah on its own. There is a mitzvah to always have a state of readiness for an opportunity. You never know when a sacrifice is going to show up. And you don't want to be scrambling for a fire. You may miss your opportunity. You want to make sure that whenever the opportunity arises, you will be able to achieve that elevation. And preparing for that, preparing the great facilitator of fire, is in itself a mitzvah. Now, I thought of a few examples of this, and I had significantly less time this week, thank God, to prepare a partnership podcast. I actually prepared it on the drive to the hospital. So I'm sure you could come up with more examples of this phenomenon. But Moshe, Moshe at the burning bush, all the way back in chapter 3 of Exodus. The verse says, Vayar Hashem Kisar liros. God saw that Moshe turned to examine this very strange phenomenon of the bush being burned but not being consumed. And because Moshe investigated, God said, okay, he's the right man for the job. Moshe was given some inspiration, but he was primed and ready to grab it, to seize upon it, to utilize it. The fire, shall we say, was burning within him, and when the opportunity arose, he was ready to go. Had Moshe not seized the moment, it's implied from the verse that Moshe would not have been selected for this mission. Second example I thought of, this is from the Talmud in Brachos on page 61b. This is the famous episode of the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was arrested for the great crime of teaching Torah publicly under the despotic regime of Hadrian, studying Torah publicly, teaching Torah publicly was a crime punishable by death and a brutal and macabre one. The barbarians, they took combs of steel, not quite steel, I guess steel wasn't invented then. Not steel, iron, iron combs, The iron combs and they flayed his skin. And the Talmud tells us That he was saying the Shema. He was saying the Shema. And the students were very puzzled by this. This is the most torturous thing a person could ever even fathom. And Rabbi Kiva is calm and he's reciting the Shema, which of course is a tradition. If you're someone who is dying in martyrdom, you're dying because you're a Jew, you're dying because of what you believe. You're supposed to say the Shema. The Jews, when they were paraded into the gas chambers, were all reciting the Shema. Rabbi Kiva saying the Shema. But the students are, are puzzled by it. And they say, even now you're saying the Shema. And he responded with the following line. Call Yamai all my days, my entire life. I was saddened when I read this verse. The verse says, you shall love God with all your hearts, with all your resources, with all your life, with all your soul. The verse tells us we to love God with our life, with our soul. Meaning that even if God takes away our soul, even if God puts us in a position that we're dying because of our fidelity to him, we still have to love God. And every time I read this verse, it says Rabbi Akiva, I was sad. And I said, When will I finally have this opportunity? And I will fulfill it. And now, I finally have that opportunity. And I'm excited to fulfill it. There's an amazing idea over here. Rabbi Kiva is one of the great heroes of our history. He died in martyrdom. He is the absolute apex of the levels of souls in the afterlife is Robert Kiva and his friends and his comrades, those who died, who were killed in martyrdom. But we see this is not something that he decided. This was not a level, so to speak, of dedication to God that he just summoned at the moment of martyrdom. He's been preparing for this his entire life. Every time he said this, citation, the Shema, he lamented the fact that he did not quite yet have the opportunity to fulfill it. And he said, "When will I finally have the opportunity?" I was sad every time I read this verse. He read it a minimum of twice every single day. Every single day, even when there was no opportunity for martyrdom, the fire was yet lit. He was ready for it. The fire was lit, and therefore when the opportunity came, he didn't miss a beat. If you're scrambling for a fire, you'll miss the opportunity. And you never know when the opportunity to accomplish great things, to unlock great heights, to achieve a great destiny, you don't know when that opportunity will present itself. And therefore, there has to always be a fire atop the altar. In my new book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, you may have heard of it. There's a chapter titled Spiritual Shortcuts. This is the part of the book that's dealing with accessing the afterlife. How do we make sure that we are citizens of ba, of the world to come? How do we guarantee that we will merit a portion in the afterlife? So in this chapter titled Spiritual Shortcuts, we talk about three stories in the Talmud about people who were not necessarily renowned for their piety and righteousness, but took a spiritual shortcut. They were able to unlock, in the words of the Talmud, they were able to earn a Lama ba, they were able to earn a ticket, a high place in the afterlife in one hour. Everyone can achieve their destiny in one hour. And in said chapter, we offer evidence To the fact that every single person will have at least one chance in their lifetimes. Listen to this. This is important. Every single person will have at least one chance in their lifetime to earn eternity in one hour. We can define our mission in life here as a quest for immortality, a quest for greatness, a quest for eternity, a quest for Lama for the next world. This world is a world of preparation. We're trying to prepare. We're preparing for the world to come. It's a corridor, the Mishnah tells us, that we're walking down the corridor to get to the ballroom to get to Lama. Typically, people have to spend their entire lives, your whole life, every day, every hour, every month, every year is a focus, is an effort to try to position yourself to earn eternity. And if you're righteous and you follow the Torah's guidance, well, after a whole life, you will be qualified. You'll be a good candidate for the world to come. But every person will also be afforded a second chance, an expedited fast-track chance to earn eternity in one hour. That's a golden opportunity. But the only way that you can actually seize upon this opportunity, it's only if you always have a fire lit on top of your altar, so to speak. You have all the ingredients in place to take that animal and turn it into a sacrifice, to transform the animal and make it into something which is eternally, spiritually relevant and valuable. Now, I was thinking that, like like many valuable lessons, this idea applies in non-sacred areas as well. You know, today, people are worried about inflation. Did you hear about that? Everyone's worried about inflation. There's a 7%, or maybe it's even higher, very high levels of inflation, and that causes a lot of, Angst for people because they don't know what to buy and it, it causes all kinds of problems. What I do with my cash in the bank and people feel like, you know, if you have cash in the bank, it's rapidly depreciating. You want to deploy it. You want to invest it, but the stock market's tanking. What are you supposed to do? The money's wasting away because of inflation. Inflation is like, like a tax eating away at your money. Perhaps you could say the same thing about the fire, the fire top of the altar. No one's using it. It's like a waste. But I think that the shrewdest investors, or as they like to call themselves, capital allocators, they always have some dry powder available. There's always some fire on hand. When there's blood in the streets, be greedy when others are fearful, they say there's opportunities that may arise. Again, this is in a non-sacred area. You have to make sure that you are ready for those opportunities. And of course, we're focusing more on the spiritual lessons, but this is a universal principle. Much of the great successes in life are attributed not to the decisions made at the time, so to speak, of the event, but are all about the preparation, getting yourself into place and waiting for that opportunity to arise and then grabbing it and then seizing on it because the fire is lit, everything's ready. You're ready to transform this opportunity into something really special. We don't know what sacrifices will show up. We don't know. But we are encouraged. We are in fact required to make sure that we always have a fire on top of the altar Should the opportunity arise, we will be able to seize it and we won't flinch. Get that fire burning. Make sure that fire is really, really hot and burning. You never know when you will need it. Okay, let's do this week's exquisite insight. Not only is there a partial podcast in this very busy week, very tumultuous week, this also to an insight. Isn't that amazing? And it's a fitting one. One of the sacrifices not featured in Laszoy's parasha is the carbon toda, the thanksgiving offering. And no, it was not a turkey. It's a thanksgiving offering that preceded the Indians, the Native Americans, America, by thousands and thousands of years. And that is that when someone has a miracle that happens to them, and don't want to thank God. For example, Tama tells us you travel over a desert and you arrive safely. You travel over a sea and you arrive safely. You're released from prison. God forbid you recover from a deadly illness. You want to thank God. You bring a carbon toda, a Thanksgiving offering. That seems very appropriate. The midrash tells us something fascinating. The Midrash says that in the future, all the sacrifices will be annulled. Now, the Midrash doesn't tell us what, when this future is and why the sacrifices will be annulled. But then it ends, the carbon Toda, the Thanksgiving sacrifice, will never be annulled. In addition, in the future, prayers will be annulled, but the prayer of Thanksgiving will never be annulled. And the question is, why? Why is Thanksgiving, this idea of the Almighty doing something good for me, and me wanting to thank God and bring a sacrifice to thank God, why is this something that will endure forever? So the commentaries tell us that there are two objectives in sacrifices. Most of the sacrifices are there to achieve repentance. You committed a sin, God forbid, and there's a need to rectify, there's a need to purify, there's a need to cleanse, to fix what was wronged. And for that, we have this whole process of sacrifices. Now we have prayer in their stead. You're fixing what is broken. And therefore, if everything is fixed, if there's nothing broken, Well, maybe in that kind of world, in that kind of epic, there's no need for sacrifices. But even in a fixed world, even in a perfected world, the objective of life is for man, and when I say man, I mean mankind, for humanity to foster and develop a relationship with the Almighty. And the way that is done is by us appreciating and having gratitude to God for all that he does for us and for God continually bestowing upon us with blessing. And that's what we're here for. We're here in this world. We were created to thank God. In the memorable comment from the Ramban at the end of Parsha's bow, we mentioned this numerous times over the many years of the Parsha podcast, this incredible come Rabban, where he talks about what life is really all about, what the mitzvahs are here for, he has a line. He says that the reason why we were created, the reason why we exist, the reason why the world, the universe exists for man, the reason why man exists, is to thank God, to develop a relationship with God. And therefore, this sacrifice, it's not there to... Only rectify something that's wrong, even when things are going right, that is what it is all about. Now, my grandfather, blessed memory, he said something very interesting. Suppose there is someone who wants to begin to take their relationship with the Almighty seriously. What is the first step? Of course, you know, your whole life is about trying to develop a relationship with the Almighty. And that, uh, once it starts, it really doesn't end. It continually advances and progresses. But what's the first step? What's the first thing you should focus on? What's the first thing you should do in the event that you make a choice, that you want to take your relationship with the Mighty seriously? The first thing my grandfather, a blessed memory, advised is to concentrate on the blessings that we say every day. Of course, we are commanded to say blessings, before we eat, after we eat, at various times in the prayers, in the morning, you wake up, you go to the bathroom. There are many times that we say blessings. In fact, the Bible tells us we're supposed to say a hundred blessings every day. If that sounds like a lot, it's because it is a lot, but it helps if you if you do all the prayers. You get kind of like most of the way through, uh, like almost 80 or 90 of them. And then you just need a few more to get to the magical number of a hundred. Blessings are an opportunity to change our perspective in life. When you are about to enjoy something, you're going to eat something, you're going to drink something, and you stop and you thank God about it. That is a radical reframing of life. Previously, you were like, well, there's a nice fruit here. There's a, so a good sandwich over here a good steak dinner over here, french fries, delicious, maybe not so healthy, but delicious nonetheless. Let's enjoy. A blessing is injecting a recognition and a memory, so to speak, remembering God in every part of your life. You're about to enjoy something? Think where it came from. Think about the Almighty who enabled this, who facilitated this. A blessing is an effort to stop taking things for granted, to stop being entitled, to notice the world around you, to thank the Almighty for all the goodness that he's given to you. You go to the bathroom. If you are fortunate enough to have a system that's all working as as planned, you, you don't think about it. You've been doing it ever since you were literally a baby. But of course, it is a very complicated system. And the digestive system and how how it all works and all the pipes and all that. It's just something to marvel upon. In fact, that's what we say in the blessing. God acts wondrously. The whole thing is a wonder. A sight to behold. A marvel to marvel upon. Normally, by default, we take it all for granted. With a blessing, we stop taking it for granted. And we think about all the goodness that he does for us. And that, of course, is going to trigger a deep feeling of appreciation and thus the fostering of a relationship. So isn't it interesting that thanking God is the quality that spans the entire spectrum of our lives? You want to get started? You want to begin your relationship with the Almighty? That's when you focus on. And when you are complete and you don't even have a need for any of the other sacrifices. Everything has been fixed. You're completely refined and perfected. This is what remains. Fascinating idea. Exquisite insight. I hope you enjoyed. I thank you for listening. I thank you for being there for me in the Parsha podcast for so long. Have a great day. Have a fantastic Purim upcoming. Purim Sameach to all of you and an incredible, wonderful, sensational, terrific, stupendous Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, please, God, with help the Almighty, we'll talk again, please, God, next week.